backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from a very uh, spread out panel this week. Joining me from New York, she is the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 in Ohio. She is a bar certified lawyer in the great state of New York and the Garden State of New Jersey. She's the one we know as Sharmila Charlie. Hello, Sharma. Hi, Justin. And joining happy me is Day. Happy President's Day to you, belated. And to the great Commonwealth of Virginia joining us from there. He is the former under undersecretary of commerce for international affairs who served at last count under four presidents. Longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, man we know as the honorable Alan Moore. Alan, hello. Hey, Justin. Hey, we obviously have a lot of material to cover, but obviously we're going to start off with the subject that's still on everybody's mind. Uh, Last week, for those who have not been seeing the news, uh, an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old male, we won't mention his name, we don't want to give him any more publicity, uh, walked into... Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, which is in the western western part of Broward County in Florida, walked in with an AR-15 and several magazines full of ammo and proceeded to conduct what has been called a just senseless act of unnecessary and just evil violence. When it was all said and done, uh, 17 individuals were killed many more were wounded several are still in Broward County hospitals recovering uh it is a just a mind-blowing mind-blowing event that took place there in South Florida uh it turns out that uh the individual used an AR-15, what is normally referred to or classified as an assault rifle. Uh, The individual also went into the building, pulled the fire alarm, allegedly, and commenced shooting once everybody started evacuating the building. Uh, the, The suspect was taken into custody by local authorities, has now been remanded without bail, in Broward County lockup and is now awaiting trial. There has been talk that the state attorney in Broward County may try and strike a deal for a guilty plea, avoiding the death penalty for this individual. This is yet again another show that we start off talking about gun violence and another mass shooting and another mass shooting in a school. Uh, This has brought up many, many questions. It has actually turned into a battle cry, if you will, for many of the students that were there in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland that day. People, individuals who saw and were victims of the violence are now creating a strong call for the president, Congress, and state legislatures to take action. A busload of about 45 or 50 students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas 
High School is now currently en route to Tallahassee, the state capital of Florida, to meet with state legislators, legislators to talk about the gun issue. So many questions still remain. So many questions why. We still do not have a motive, uh, but apparently the individual did suffer from depression, recently lost his mother, and was residing with a foster family who, in fact, did not know he was this troubled. Uh, so many places to start, so many so many things that we can talk about, but obviously the question is how. Uh, we can go into the, the aspects of it, but I, I've got to start off with the how does this happen? Uh, Sharmla, how does this happen in a high school in a day where we have modern technology, where we have school resource officers on campuses, how does this happen? You know, unfortunately, Justin, you know, all our thoughts and prayers are going out to the, the students and all the victims at uh, Stoneman High School. And one of the unfortunate things that I've really dis- that I've really discovered in thinking about this tragedy is that you can't. It's so hard to predict and prevent these these incidences from happening. If you look at the last sort of two or three mass shootings that have captured our attention as a, as a country, you think about um, you know the shooter in Parkland last week. You think about the shooter in Las Vegas in October. You think about the shooter in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. All of these acts were so unpredictable and committed by people who may have had sort of minor disturbances in their past but had no real criminal record or no strong signs that they would commit these types of atrocities. And so the question becomes, how can you, what sort of sensible gun legislation can you really put in place that's going to predict and prevent these types of crimes from happening? All of our discussions now are reactive. All of our discussions that talk about banning automatic rifles or banning bump stocks or more screening for you know, mentally ill folks and preventing them from getting guns, it's all reactive, but none of it can predict when the next attack is going to occur. Alan Moore, I, I pose the question to you. How does this happen in today's day and age? It happens um, <laughs> for multiple reasons, as uh, Sharmila suggests. One, a, course, a coarseness uh, of the culture um uh broken homes uh violence that kids are exposed to from an early age all of which contribute to to a degree that we don't begin to understand the existence of hundreds of millions of guns in America including millions of semi-automatic uh rifles and handguns um uh, and the relative ease of availability and accessibility to those guns, notwithstanding r- rules on background checks, that don't make it super easy, but don't make it all that hard. So you've you, you've got you've you've got uh, social uh, uh, breakdowns that that make things possible then you've got the availability of guns and the accessibility uh, of guns, and it's a toxic combination. What we don't know is, is whether the – to what extent one event 
triggers copycats, um, a phenomenon that's long since been uh, understood by uh, by the psych the the psychology world, um, and and it it and it, it but it it's not just schools as as Sharmila reminds us, <laughs> it was it was a shooting at a country western show from from high up in a hotel in Las Vegas. It was in a church in Texas. It it's at places of of work. Um, and, uh, and the, the, the Congress, um, the country, the state legislatures are sort of stymied and not knowing what to do. There's, there's, there, there's all this talk about the power of the NRA and the fact that people are afraid to do anything. I'm not saying there is no power and nothing to be afraid of, but there's no kind of consensus either around what, should be done what will make a difference one of the reasons one of the reasons we don't have great ideas uh or a sense that something will work and i you know around this table we've always said well let's do something we 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 think there are some things you can do that aren't going to that aren't going to do damage but one of the reasons we're not sure that that might help some that, that we're not sure is because the the federal government has been stopped from doing research into gun violence and possible uh, actions that might be taken um, legislatively, legally, uh, to reduce the number. Um, and that uh, is, is an issue on which the NRA really, you know, they, they have arguably blood on their hands for a number of things, and that's one of them, um, their, their efforts to prevent the, the, the Centers for Disease Control and the NIH to even study and look at the different kinds of things interventions that might make a difference right let's let's take a look first at the actual response from political leaders uh regarding this uh and then we're going to get into the policy aspect of this because uh, right now starting at the top with president trump uh president trump has uh has taken some criticism for his either lack of immediate response, his lack of empathy, his lack of ability to be a, a true consoler in chief that we saw with uh, presidents going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. Um, is, 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 he, 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 according to, or in the opinion of a friend of the shows, uh, NBC News' John Allen, uh, his thoughts and prayers were with more of the gun industry than it was then with the victims of Parkland. Uh, Sharma, do you agree with that assessment? Was his lack of empathy just telling of his either fear or his dedication to the NRA and gun owners in the country and placating to his base? I think it's about the latter item you mentioned. I think it is about placating his base and not saying anything to disrupt the, the, the support from the NRA and sort of the more Second Amendment loving crowd that, that comprises a large part of his base. I, I, don't think that, I don't think that he displayed more or less empathy for Parkland than he has for any of the other disasters that our country has seen since his tenure of being president, including the Las Vegas shooting or the Sutherland Spring shooting or hurricanes 
Harvey and Maria. I think that he's demonstrated a pretty consistent level of being able to pay lip service to the right things, but not really communicating a real sense of empathy or connection with people's suffering. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to go out of my way to criticize his response to this incident because I don't think it's that off the mark from his response to other incidents. I do think that the Republican, the, the, the line that President Trump is espousing and the GOP line of, oh, well, this is not the right time to politicize this issue and, you know, it's really an issue of mental health is being directly challenged by the victims now. And that's a seed change from what we've seen before. In this instance, as you said, Justin, the students are not standing for this anymore. They are not. They are the ones who were shot at. They are the ones who were threatened. They are the ones who are terrified for their lives. And they are the ones, I think, no one will deny that they have the right to react to this situation in whatever way they deem fit. And they are the ones who have decided to say, no, we are politicizing this. We are bringing this to your attention because this, it's nonsense that, you know, in all these years, after all these shootings, the same pattern has emerged time and time again, that, you know, that our politicians have not actually taken action to prevent this type of incident from occurring. And I think that's where you see, that's where you're going to see more power coming in, in the days and months ahead. And I'm, I'm, Alan very, Moore, I'm very eager to see what these students are able to accomplish in their – Alan in Moore, their is, is the criticism of Donald Trump fair? Well, I mean, which, which criticism? I, you, you suggested that he was, he was more sympathetic to, to gun manufacturers um, than, than to, to the, the victims. I did not see that at all. I think that's a false narrative. I, I agree with Sharmila that this is a man – who does not in his gut feel empathy, nor is he able to show it. Um, and, I, you know, it'd be one thing to say he can't show it, but the poor guy's dying inside. You don't tend to see the, the dying inside part. You just, you, it's, it's like there's a disconnect between these horrendous events and his world, and that disconnect is so far removed that, that he, he doesn't feel it and he doesn't show it. Um, having said that, I also agree with Sean when she said, I, you know, he's, he's cautious. He doesn't want to offend his base. Having said that, we all know from, <laughs> because this stuff gets reported, that all weekend when he wasn't, when he wasn't embarrassing himself by tweeting, um, he, he was down in Mar-a-Lago talking to people, saying, so what do you, what do you think? And what do you think about, about uh, enhanced background checks. What do you think about other actions? He's, he's trying to figure it out. He has an opportunity. The, the, he, he screws up so often on things that sometimes an opportunity presents itself whereby just being semi-reasonable, he can appear transformative. He's now being you know, said, hey, maybe we do need to strengthen the, the background check system, and maybe we'll talk about some of the ways that can be done. And I'm, I'm thinking that may happen. And the, the, the argument that, that this isn't the time, you're not hearing that this time. I am not hearing that from, from members of Congress. In times past when there's well, we a long that, period. Wait, wait a minute, between, Alan, 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 just jump in. We heard, that just, from, we heard that from Paul Ryan. We heard that from I don't Paul care. Look, it's not the narrative. I think it. I don't think it characterizes what people are saying right now. It. It in times past there would be a long period of time between one of these things, and you'd have an event, and people say, "Well, you know, you don't want to. We, we don't want to be overly reactive." 
But when you have several in a row, when you have several, if you will, you know, huge ones in the, in, in the last eight months, um, suddenly that, you know, not, not that that ever worked particularly well, but that is now being dismissed. You are not sure. There's always going to be some people who say it. And if Ryan says it, it's not insignificant. It's not the, it's not the narrative that you're hearing from, from, uh, from, from conservatives generally. They realize that doesn't fly now. Not when we've had three major um, um, massive uh, killing sprees in, in such a short period of time, which is what, and, and, and this is what presents itself to the president, a chance for him to, to do something. There's a, there, there's a bill that, that's, that, that deals with background checks. If we deal with background checks, maybe we deal with bump stocks. Maybe we have a vote on an assault weapons ban. Maybe we have a vote on the, on the, on the, on these, uh, the, the, these, uh, these canisters that hold, uh, you know, up to 30 or more cartridges. There's a, there's, there's a variety of issues of things that have been floating around. Um, and maybe you can do something on mental health. I don't know that we're going to do a major sort of gun reform initiative, but, but the, the, there's a feeling and, and Sharma talks about these kids and, and, and it's not just the kids from Florida. It's, it's kids from schools around the country that have either right. they've, 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 they've been touched or they have observed and they're reflecting on it. And well, they're all these schools now have practice sessions for what do you do? If, and we're uh, gonna get th- if, if, if there's an active shooter, so and we're gonna, are touched and we're, in different ways than before. And we're going to get to that, uh, but I do want to announce real quick, there's breaking news coming out of the AP in Washington. Uh, during a law enforcement honoring ceremony that President Trump is attending at the White House, uh, pre- the AP is reporting that President Trump has directed the Justice Department to ban gun modifications like bump stocks used in Las Vegas in the Las Vegas massacre that uh, coming from AP by way of uh, Audrey Howerton, our associate producer up there in Washington. Uh, Sharmila, is this a good start? I mean, is this a sign that possibly somebody or the events over the weekend have taken enough effect on the president that he can see his way through the trees and start looking at, if not small ways, uh, but just some way to get sensible gun legislation in place? I mean, yes, it is a good start. Is it enough of a start? No. It would be more of a start to kind of really revisit the assault weapons ban generally, but... Yes, it is a start, and it is, it is heartening to see the president having any sort of openness to, to restrictions of guns in any way and to defying the NRA's stated position in any way. And so, yes, I'm not going to sit here and criticize President Trump for doing the right thing for once. I mean, Alan Moore, it, it seems like it might be a – Although small but good move in the right direction, the question is, can he survive his the fire coming from possibly his base and make this happen and make it real? What's bizarre to me is that it's taken this long to do something about bump stocks because that seemed like a slam dunk, low-hanging fruit. 
after Las Vegas, um, where even the NRA said, yeah, we, we, don't, we, we don't defend bump stocks. And the question was, will it take legislation, or, uh, or can we do this um, via the administratively uh, process? And, right. and I remember at the time the, 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 the Democrats wanted to pass legislation because they, they wanted to, to load it up with other stuff, um, and the Republicans were saying, "Hey, can't we? Can't we? We don't. We, we're, we're nervous about bringing up uh, a piece of legislation and losing control over it. Can't we do this administratively? And now at least they're going to do that. That was that was that's old news, though. That was post Las Vegas when we when we began to realize that these fairly simple, cheap devices would turn a already horrendously lethal semi-automatic weapon into a basically a fully automatic weapon what the hell is that about how is that how is that not you know years ago uh once these right. things somebody figured out how to build these things uh, a direct violation of the prohibition against uh, against truly automatic weapons um right. i think so, now though that that, that it's going to take uh, much more than just a, a rule on bump stocks and i think the, i think this precedent is is kind of getting it and i don't know where this ends up but 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 when when he I hadn't seen that he had he had asked for that to occur. It's about damn time. But but on 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 background checks and some other stuff, that's more interesting. I mean, I really do think that there's a chance there's a chance that that the mood has shifted. And if the president sees a chance for himself here to do some things. Um, it's it's not like any of these things would have stopped any of the recent events, and that's always been a complaint. Like, hey, we could do all of that stuff, and we still would have had Las Vegas. We still would have had um, uh, the, the the church shootings. We still would have had Parkland. But we don't know that, and we don't know what down the road might not occur because it was a little bit harder to get uh, some of these weapons. It's doing nothing that becomes absolutely indefensible and i think there's a growing sense that that's not going to fly but sharmila it seems to me knowing this administration that he'll he'll get the justice department to ban bump stocks and they'll claim it as him being aggressive on gun violence they'll claim this is a huge victory uh, is there a responsibility from both sides of the aisle in Congress to call him out on that, saying, look, bump stocks didn't kill 17 people in Parkland. Bump stocks did not kill the dozens in a church in south central Texas. And bump stocks did not kill the people in the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Is 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 this an opportunity for both sides of the aisle to really stand up and say, as the hashtag that the students in Parkland have be, have started and is now trending, hashtag never again, is this enough to get their attention? Well, yes, I think there is a responsibility on members of both sides of Congress, but I think the responsibility is to get him, is to push him further. I think that, you know, obviously we've seen with, President Trump, he does not react well to criticism. And so the way to actually get him to the place you want is to encourage him. Is And so if Democrats and Republicans were smart, instead of saying, well, bump stocks are, you know, this is all well and good, but 
this is not enough, they would say, this is a great start and here's how we keep going. Here's how you can continue this trend of protecting our children, protecting our citizens, and you know, respecting the Second Amendment. You extend this bump stock ban and you think about raising the age for assault weapons. You think about assault weapons ban. You, you bring all these items back to the table. One incontrovertible fact is that the last three mass shootings we've experienced as a country, Parkland, Sutherland Springs, and Las Vegas, all involved AR-15s and automatic rifles. There's a place to start. And I think the way that you actually encourage President Trump to get there is by encouraging him and praising the progress he's made and then pushing it forward. As much as I would you know, I, 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 and think about ways to criticize him, that's not the way you push something forward with him. And, so, and, and, and in this case, it's too important to get, to get bogged down in petty political squabbles to not push this legislation and this agenda forward. And, you know, we're going to talk about the policies uh, in our next half hour, but I, I want to talk about the the actual response to the actual shooting. W- one of the other uh, folks I wanted to take a look at was the response by Governor Rick Scott and his uh, administration in Tallahassee. Uh, it, it, I will give Rick Scott credit for not only – uh, being immediate in his response and immediate in his going down there and being, I mean, Rick Scott, for all of his um, issues, I will say, Rick Scott has done a good job of trying to be a true consoler in chief at the state level. I do want to credit uh, Rick Scott, Attorney General Pam Bondi, uh, and the rest of the state administration in Tallahassee, uh, what they do as far as working with funeral homes so the victims aren't going to have to pay for, the state will cover the costs of funerals and burials for the victims. Uh, they have started funds that are being regulated by the state to prevent any sort of fraudulent funds from appearing. Uh the, the governor has set up an entire response network uh, to to deal with anything from the emotional trauma to possible financial issues of the families that that may occur as a result of this. Uh, I do want to give credit to them. However, it does strike me that the immediate response of the governor in one of his press conferences, he did state, and I quote, the Second Amendment didn't kill these students. It seems to me that the states have an opportunity to really take the ball and run with it and start making some true maneuvers into having sensible gun language. Uh, is, is Is this a dilemma for a governor like Rick Scott, Ellen Moore, where Governor Scott, who has to play to a base that is largely Trump-esque but still have to deal with a large population base down southeast Florida that that is feeling the 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 aftermath of such a tragedy like this well it it, it's a tricky business for any politician they they you know I think about nine states now have what most people consider to be universal background system, uh, background check systems, and, and 40, 41 states uh, uh, don't. Um, and so 
states and local governments have paid a lot of attention over the years. We famously hear about the the, the, t- the tough gun laws in Chicago where they have a very high homicide rate. At the same time, the very tough gun laws in New York City where they've got a remarkably low um, uh, uh, gun death rate. Um, there's no simple, straightforward uh, matter here. You, one thing you did not say about Governor Scott's response was two things. One, the fact that down in Florida, in that school district and in that community, the the there had it was not um, this 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 uh, this uh, shooter, this alleged shooter, uh, was not unknown to them. He they had they had uh, had been uh, to to that that home numerous times. There had been talk and rumors and 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 psychological evaluations of of a very troubled kid. And somehow the the various pieces of information didn't come together down there. And then, of course, even more damning or, or damning in another way, and, and the governor got his nose into this, uh, is the information that had been reported to the FBI that was even in many ways more frightening and more direct about this particular person and things he was talking about that was reported to the FBI and there was no follow-up, all of which caused Governor Scott to jump to the conclusion that the FBI director needed to resign. Um, uh, maybe he does need to resign. I don't know. I, I, I'm not. I, I think we have to wait and see what was known, uh, who did what, what how this happened. Is this something that fell through the cracks? Are there lots of things that fall through the cracks? For everyone that falls through the cracks, do they fix a thousand of them, or is the system just not very well structured and well, and, and, and doesn't work? And, let and, me jump on that. So. Yeah. Let me jump on that real quick, Alan, because I, I, I do want to bring that up. I, you know, knowing the system that it, that that they have, uh, I, I'm not going to defend the FBI field office in Miami, nor am I going to defend the tip line desk at headquarters in Washington D.C. But I do want to point out that the FBI daily gets thousands of these tips and they have been so strung out as trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, prioritize or triage, which ones are the ones that they have to send a limited number of agents to go investigate. They just don't have the manpower to do that. And that's the concern. I, I, I guess, Sharmila, the question now is, is it fair to criticize the FBI and call for Director Ray's resignation uh, as a result of the shooting in Parkland? Or is this just proof positive that the infrastructure at the Bureau just cannot handle everything that's being put on their plate? So before I answer that, I want to push back a little bit, Justin, on your defense of Governor Scott, because I think that, you know, as much as I was not willing to criticize Donald Trump for his response to Park to Parkland, I am willing to criticize Governor Scott for his, because he should have known better. This is Rick Scott has now had two mass shootings in his state in the last 18 to 20 months, and. His reaction cannot be, well, the Second Amendment didn't kill anyone, and oh, well, well, let's let's see what to do about guns. A total of almost 70 people 
in his state, you know, that, you know, have been killed in these two very publicized mass shootings, not, and that doesn't include anyone else in Florida who's been killed by gun violence, you know, between that. And so I think the Rick, Rick Scott's reaction to, to push off the gun debate and simply focus on mental health issues is absolutely inexcusable. And all the rest of the stuff he's doing, you know, visiting the victims first, setting up, uh, setting up funds for funeral expenses, you know, encouraging victims to get the help they need, that's his job. And so, yes, it's great he's doing it, but that's his job. He shouldn't get extra praise for doing his basic job. Um, but back to what you were saying about the FBI, I think that it is – and I think it's somewhat inexcusable for him to try to push, to defer criticism of his own reaction onto Christopher Ray and say, oh, well, you know, Christopher Ray is the bad guy here. He's the one who needs to resign because the FBI, you know, let this tip fall through the cracks and didn't, wasn't able to stop the shooter before he committed the atrocity at Parkland. So I think that you're right that the, that what happened with the FBI much more, uh, points to structural and institutional failures on on the part of law enforcement about knowing which threats and knowing which concerns to respond to. They they do have limited resources, and it's as you said, it's impossible for them to respond to every single call of concern to every single threat. They have to take calculated risks and you know determine based on their experience and their judgment which of these risks are, they think are most likely to lead to an incident. And in this case, their calculations misfired. Is it is it a matter of had we funded mental health more? Is it a matter of had we funded school safety more? Is it a matter of us uh, having more school resource officers available under these times of budget? You know, it, it, are these factors that we need to take into account? instead of pointing fingers at Christopher Ray to leave his job as a bureau chief, Alan Moore? Well, by the simple reference of, of the different kinds of, of things where more resources, in this case, might have made a difference, um, politicians at all levels are always having to make judgments about, about how, mu- how much money to tax, where to tax from, and then how to spend that money. And if it's a school system, um, and we we worry particularly about schools because we you know these so-called no gun zones have turned out to be uh, very popular uh, uh, targets um, uh, for 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 crazy folks who who want to come in and wantonly kill innocents. Um, and lots and lots of money and resources have been dedicated now to putting up fences, um, having security personnel present. Um, uh, having folks wandering the halls, in some cases metal detectors, um, all of those things are major expenses and investments that drain from um, the, the the basic process of education. But safety first, education second. I mean, nobody's going to argue with that priority. But how you balance those conflicting demands is uh, is a matter of for for policy folks to decide and. I don't know how those decisions are made down there. I don't. I, I, I'm not going to second guess uh, their their decisions. Um, there are a lot of things that could have gone differently here, um, 
and and that was why when I mentioned that <laughs> when I brought up the FBI in the first place, I don't think we know enough about what the FBI did, how they're set up, what kind of volume they deal with, what happened to this particular one, whether it whether it fell through the cracks or whether it was just lost in the in the mountain of of uh, of call-ins that 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 come and they and they have to they have to they somehow the system sorts them prioritizes picks uh etc it's a great tragedy that we know what was said about this particular guy and then it played out this way and and there's a great temptation to simply say how could they screw up so badly but but none of us has the the knowledge the context within which to make that that judgment um with with any great confidence and it's the same with mental health or other actions that might or might not have occurred. Unfortunately, we have to do all those things. You know, we're talking about about guns, access to guns, and then we're talking about mental health, and then we're talking about security in public places. Um, and uh, it's it's a great balancing act, uh, even as the society is changing, and we see some of these things happening again and again. Copycat uh, occurrences. It's frightening. Let me inter- let me just interject one thing, Alan. I mean, we we oh, oh, hold on, Charmel. Let me just ask you this one question. It seems that the public outcry is directed mostly at the federal government. Does I mean, are we missing the forest through the trees in this situation? That instead of focusing everything at the federal level, that there's a certain in- inherent responsibility of the states to take control of. The issues that we've just talked about. Well, the, 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 they need to be in partnership. The states, the, the states are not potted plants sitting off to the side. On the one hand, on the other hand, when it comes to guns, um, if you don't have federal laws that that restrict uh, weapons or access to weapons, it's really hard for a state or local government to erect boundaries that that barriers that work. Um, guns are highly portable. We know this, you know, we don't know this just in Illinois where you go downstate and get your guns and bring them back to, to the city. We know it right here in Washington, D.C. You come over to Virginia to get your guns, carry them back into D.C., or you get a friend to come to Virginia, buy one legally, sell it back to you. Um, and so if the guns are there um, and, and, and out in the marketplace um, uh, pretty readily available, um it's really hard for the, the, the District of Columbia government or the Chicago government to come up with rules that can close off, if you will, all of the roads into Chicago. So you need some federal guidelines. The, the, there's no agreement, of course, on what federal guidelines will make a significant difference. So, But we can't just say no, nothing would have stopped these things. Let's keep praying. Um, you, you people expect government government officials to act in times of crisis, and, and public officials, the elected officials, know that. And I think that's the that's kind of the 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 environment that we've crept into now with uh, with Parkland and the and the shootings over the last couple of years. Um, that that public tolerance. Um, uh, is uh, has has been reduced significantly. So, we have a president 
talking, apparently saying, let's get rid of, let's do, let's, let's clean out this bump stock business and let's talk about enhanced uh, background checks and maybe more. We'll see. But, you know, Sharmila, and, and going back to, to – go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and Justin, you know, now I'll reverse my trend of not bashing on Donald Trump for the show. Uh, you know, we have a president who, in his inaugural address, talked about American carnage and throughout his campaign and throughout his presidency has said, you know, America has all these problems and I'm the only one who can fix it. And now Americans are saying, we have a problem. M- Donald Trump, you said you can fix it, so fix it. But, and but so here's I think my question. Part of, part, of the, part of the reaction of, of the phenomenon you're describing of people looking to the federal government is born directly from Donald Trump, Donald Trump's own rhetoric. So let me ask you this question. You know, I, we look at states. We look at, like, Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general in New York, and, and his boss, Governor Cuomo, who have taken aggressive – stances on issues regarding public safety, uh, it, it, it seems to me that there are some uh, there, there are abilities now uh, looking at states like Connecticut, New York, New Jersey with, uh, with the new administration there in Trenton under, uh, uh, under Governor Murphy. It, it, it strikes me that there is an opportunity for states to take control of their own destiny, particularly when it deals with the safety of public schools and the safety of the citizens within their boundaries and not have to rely on on the federal government. I mean, is this a cop-out or is this just uh, fear that what they do isn't going to have true, true effects? Well, I, I have to agree with Alan, right? A state's gun laws are only as good as the gun laws of the state next to them. And this, the three states you pointed out, New York, um, New Jersey, and Connecticut, those three governors have actually been working to create something similar to the Governor's Alliance on Climate Change, where you know once Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, a bunch of like-minded governors, um, Jerry Brown, Andrew Cuomo, I believe Phil Murphy, Dan Malloy, have all formed a sort of a a statewide uh, agreement or an interstate agreement to abide by the abide by the Paris guidelines. And so now I know that Phil Murphy, Andrew Cuomo and Dan Malloy of Connecticut are trying to form a similar partnership of, you know, enhanced gun laws and respecting, you know, creating a creating safer gun regimes within those states. But if the governor of Pennsylvania, if the governor of Maryland, if these neighboring states aren't participating in it, you know, uh, Alan had an excellent point. Guns are highly portable. You can drive a gun from Pennsylvania to New York to New Jersey to Connecticut to Rhode Island and commit atrocities, you know, along the way. But not necessarily. But not necessarily legally. And commit an atrocity in state with, no, not necessarily legally. But how do you how do you stop that movement? And that's where a federal system comes in. That's where the federal government has to participate. Well, I mean, this brings us up to because the bigger they, issue. I mean, this brings us up to the bigger issue is, you know, number one, one of the things that we heard in the 2016 campaign was Hillary Clinton and the Democrats are just trying to do away with the Second Amendment and they're going to come and take your guns, uh, which, in fact, we know not to be the case, which, in fact, we know is not true. In fact, there are many Democrats out there 
that, uh, you know, including, you know, one of the biggest gun-supporting Democrats out there, uh, Governor Manchin of West Virginia, uh, who, who literally are being told, your party's trying to take away the Second Amendment. How do we defend against rhetoric like that, Sharmila, and say, look, the Democrats are not doing that? In fact, this is a constitutional right. We understand that, but we've got to be smart about it. Well, I think, I think that's a really interesting question, and I actually read a fantastic article uh, earlier today by Bill Scherer in Politico that really looked at this issue because I think that Democrats trying to split the baby in half saying, oh, well, of course we respect the Second Amendment, and, but, you know, but at the same time we want safety, hasn't worked for them. It's, it hasn't worked for them, and it's not working for them because – the NRA and similar gun lobbying groups have created such a strong gun culture around the ownership and use of firearms that, you know, that they recognize when people are just paying lip service to the Second Amendment. And I think the, the smarter strategy, unfortunately it's a more long-term strategy, is for Democrats to really work to enact a cultural seed change around gun control. And I think you see it in the newer generation. Uh, you know, Bill Scherer's argument was treat guns the same way that the Truth Campaign treated tobacco, where it went from something cool and rebellious to something dirty and dangerous. And now you see teen smoking rates, which were once about a quarter of teenagers in the U.S. were smokers. Now it's down to something like less than 10 percent. I think it's about. Yeah, but Sharmila, Sharmila, that and was that I mean, the Truth Campaign. With the, let me just jump in. The, the Truth Campaign was funded by the tobacco industry judgments that were levied against the makers of cigarettes. You know, there was a billion-dollar fund that was created to supply for the truth campaign. Is there any chance that we're going to see a similar judgment against gun manufacturers? We haven't seen it in the past. That would create a fund that would give – go ahead. But perhaps. There is now the political will behind it. Perhaps now, if you get enough victims to engage in class action suits against these gun manufacturers for you know, the, the trauma and the loss that they've in, incurred at the expense of, of these large magazine rifles, then perhaps you will get something similar. Um, I think that that's a really, it's a really interesting path that you know, victims and legislators should be exploring because I think, again, it's not, it's not just about dollars, right? You know, yes, the NRA has a lot of financial resources, but the dollars aren't what's the dollars aren't the only thing driving the narrative and what, that are keeping the NRA in power. It's the mythology and the stories that they've created around around gun culture and around people's Second Amendment rights, and that's what Democrats really need to start pushing back on and finding innovative ways to make to sort of deprogram the American electorate from this, you know from this gun culture and this Second Amendment inherent right mythology. Alan Moore, is the Republican Party capable of stopping the demagoguery of the NRA and other gun ownership organizations like the National AR-15 Owners Association? I don't think anybody's going to stop these these organizations. The NRA is is remarkably... (laughs) is remarkably flexible and resilient and clever and patient. Um, but they're also pretty smart and, and they, you can, you can know that they're tracking public opinion polls, gun ownership figures, um, and, and, uh, the mood of, uh, uh, of politicians. Um, 
And uh, uh, so I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I'm always intrigued that people talk about their uh, their money and their incredible power and how much money they give here and there. And and to me, ultimately, it 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 it, it translates to votes. And and uh, it's not dollars; it's people who show up at the ballot box. So what they do have is is a lot of extremely loyal voters. And they've been able to push this narrative of, of, of people who want to take their guns away from them. And frankly, uh, some Democrats over time, more than a handful at different times, have said, we've got to start somewhere if we're going to get their guns away from them. So you have a few quotes out there from people some who, still, who still serve. Um, I can't, nothing immediately comes to mind, but I think Nancy Pelosi, for example, um, has, has said things at times. Um, that that become the ammunition, no pun intended, uh, of the other side talking about their their true intent. And and as Sharma says, they the, the Democrats have got to make a convincing case. They've got to use the Joe Manchins of the world, and for that matter, the Bernie Sanders of the world, um, uh, or even Kristen uh, Gillibrands, um, who started out very with with A ratings from the the NRA. She doesn't anymore, uh, being from from upstate New York. But to say, look, we, we, we're, we're, we really don't want to take your guns away. We really do, though, want to protect everybody and, and put some, you know, some sort of common sense rules into this process so that there are unnecessary risks that we're all taking. Watch us do what we say, hold us accountable, and so on. It's hard because people are really dug in on this particular issue, what's so, what's so interesting, and it may, you know, two weeks from now we may not be talking about it, because it will have gone away, but is is what young kids are doing, and not just as I said before, the Florida kids, but but kids all over the place, and 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 the local school districts. Back to your question, what what do locals do? They're spending a lot of money. Most schools, most junior highs and high schools, and God forbid, probably elementary schools, have gone through different kinds of preparation and training and structural change to try to protect against. The, the, the unlikely but, but now at least conceivable possibility of, of some shooter coming in. And you think about how much money that costs, what wasted, wasted money in terms of the, the educational purpose. It's not wasted in terms of you have no choice. It's just so sad that, that we have to do that. But those are the kinds of decisions that local politicians are making all the time not least of all because it's so hard to create laws that will actually work. We can make a lot of things illegal. A lot of things are illegal now, and there's a lot of illegal gun ownership out there in the land, and we don't begin to know uh, how to deal with it. When you've got 300 million guns, um, and, and some millions of them are, are, are these, uh, these high-caliber assault-type um, weapons, there's just no way to, 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 to get it. On the one hand, no, no way to get our hands around that. But that doesn't mean we don't try to slow it down in the future. I'm fine with an assault weapons ban. And the one from 1993 basically said, if you already have one, you're fine. But going forward, um, these many kinds but, of uh, weapons are no, long, are no longer Alan, allowed. It didn't, it didn't Alan, have we, much impact. But, Alan, we've seen time and time again where Congress has tried to pass 
I mean, they've tried to pass everything since uh, Dianne Feinstein's uh, assault weapons bill back after Sandy Hook. Uh, we've seen the bump stock legislation die in the Senate. I mean, a bipartisan bill to prohibit people on the terrorist watch list, the no-fly list, from buying guns was defeated by a filibuster. I mean, to me, there's a certain sense of hypocrisy in all of this. What is it going to take to get Congress to either not be afraid of the gun lobby or take the initiative and say, you know, we don't want to see any more students lying dead in a high school? Well, so, so it, 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 it takes enough horrific events for a political coalition to emerge and, and make some decisions. It's hard to decide what to do. You pick on the, the, the terrorist watch list, so-called, which is by many measures, a bogus list. Um, and so you, you, you use that as your example of, Oh my God, if you can't do that, can you do anything? That's not what I'd studied, but but it, that, I mention that only because it, it's a reminder of how difficult it is to, to call a less around anything. What we do know is that over 90% of the, of, of, the, of the public wants strengthened background checks because there's a sense that private transactions, some people call, uh, use the term a gun show loophole, private sales, Internet sales, and so on, is, 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 which is not the major way that, that guns are bought and sold in America, but it's an important way, and it's an important way to bypass uh, the system um, that, that most people think that that should be strengthened. So that's, that's where that and bump stocks is where you start. That's the, if there's low-hanging fruit, and we, we've, we learned from experience that that fruit that looks low isn't, doesn't pick as easily as it might, but 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 you start where there is very very broad uh, agreement. But even on assault weapons now, assault type weapons, um, and and there's a disagreement of terms there. Um, you know, it's now about two thirds of the country that that thinks there should be new limits on the availability of those. And it's a tougher sell, but we did it before. It didn't have a lot of impact. We've been without it now for for 20 years. Uh, Diane Feinstein, who was involved. The first time around is 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 back again as she has been over the years. Now there's a little momentum. Maybe something will happen. But the president is key. The president is key in this stuff. Oh, Alan. So I have ahead, to challenge Alan. Alan's assertion that that um that the assault weapons ban didn't have impact because look, in the last two years, 18 months, you've had a few of the deadliest shootings in U.S. history, and that is attributable. That is directly attributable to assault assault weapons. And so I think the perhaps it did not perhaps the assault weapons ban did not do much to diminish diminish the incidence of gun violence, but it certainly had an effect on the body counts that you're seeing that you saw. No, wait. We we had an assault. Let me just clarify. We had an assault weapons ban for about ten years, and during that period of time, when the ban was in in effect, all the data showed that there that there was virtually no impact. That's all I meant. So it died and it wasn't renewed. 
And, so, and, so, what and, so what I'm hearing from you, but, Alan, hold on, Alan, hold, what I'm hearing is that in the, in the 10 years that we had an assault weapons ban, okay, it had no impact. But if I look at the statistics, if I look at the history of mass shootings, we've had more mass shootings since that assault weapons ban came out of effect, since that law was sunset than we've seen in the history of this country. And they're not and using... And they've been deadlier. They're, and they're, they're not using Remington 870 shotguns. They're not using, in, for, in many instances, they're not using even semi-automatic handguns like Glocks. A majority of the, uh, of the deadliest mass shootings in this country have been at the end of a barrel of a tactical assault weapon. How does I totally agree with you. Party- I totally agree with you, but I, I don't, maybe I'm not making myself clear. We had an assault weapons ban. It, it was sunsetted. It was not renewed. The conclusion at the time was it didn't make any significant difference. So we've been out one, without one, and people seem to think we can't have one. I'm saying let's try it again. I think that the time... Oh is come to go back. I don't care about the data. I don't care if it, quote, didn't work. I want to try it again. I just want to make myself clear here. I was talking about the data before. It wasn't an argument against the ban. I'm ready to go at it again and, and, uh, and, and make a run at it. More power to Diane Feinstein. I agree. And, he, and here's what gets me is you have two-thirds of America that now believe, particularly after what's happened in Parkland, What's happened in Texas? What's happened in Orlando? What's happened in in Connecticut? After these very tragic, senseless mass shootings, it appears that now two thirds of America believe that there is no reason that a civilian should own a tactical assault weapon. Yet we continue to hear the argument out of the gun advocates that saying, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. One of the greatest quotes I've heard over the past 96 hours is, yeah, people kill people, but people with tactical assault weapons kill a lot more people than people with knives or revolvers or even handguns. There's no, I cannot see an argument that is remotely feasible of why a tactical assault weapon designed by the military, designed by a government contractor, designed for the sole purpose of offensive tactical operations or military operations designed to kill people, it should be justified that, well, I take it hunting. That's not true. And that's a bogus argument, yet it is an argument that Congress continues to hear at the expense of dead bodies in schools and churches and in nightclubs. I, and, and this is an argument that has been spread, this is an argument that has been argued by every law enforcement organization that I know of, including the major one, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, who have been saying this since long before Sandy Hook. It, it just boggles my mind. And the question I have is, Sharma, you know, it seems to me that now's the time that we should see law enforcement and these students 
and everybody start to really speak up and take to task the gun rights lobby, including the NRA. The question is, is that possible? Well, Justin, the unfortunate truth, I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said, but the unfortunate truth uh, of, our, of our Constitution is that the law is on the gun advocate's side. The fact that the right to bear arms is embedded in the Constitution as an individual right is the source of a lot of is a source of a lot of this argument, and on, and the law is on their side, right? The individual rights in the Constitution were created to prevent against the tyranny of the majority, so that even if 99 out of 100 people believed X, the person who believed Y could still live their life in peace and not be persecuted for it. Now you have a situation where you describe two thirds of the country believe that, you know, um, believe that assault weapons shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed outside of law enforcement or military use and yet you have this small majority because they have this individual right that's embedded in the constitution they have the right to and the constitution doesn't distinguish between the types of arms just like the constitution doesn't distinguish between types of speech they have the right to hold on to these weapons and that's an incredibly hard argument to fight against it's an incredibly well, like, hard yeah. argument to overcome yeah, Alan Moore. I, I think yeah, I think the three of us agree. We we, we would <laughs> we would like to see assault weapons banned, assault type weapons banned, um, and 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 fine. Um, I, I I push back on what Shamla just said though, and that is that the the ninety the nineteen ninety three as I understand it the nineteen ninety three ban that was in effect for ten years uh, was challenged constitutionally numerous times and. And and those those constitutional challenges based on the Second Amendment failed. Um, the Heller decision, which which was the famous decision of of uh, about ten years ago in in D.C. that said it DC, the Washington D.C. may not ban ownership of guns, may not ban ownership of handguns, um, and and that was a Second Amendment case. Um, but in that in that decision. Um, uh, Justice Scalia famously made it clear that that doesn't mean you can't ban certain kinds of guns or certain elements of guns, uh, 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 canisters that hold uh, certain numbers of cartridges. Those are those are all legitimate issues for legislatures. So I don't think that that there's any constitutional barrier to banning assault weapons again if the political will is there to do that. It's really hard to do, and there's, a, and there's millions of them out there, a lot more than were out there in 1993, and they're not just the rifles, the AR-15s, but, the, the, uh, but there's all these semi-automatic pistols too, so there's millions and millions of things out there, but that doesn't mean you don't try to stop the flow as they did back in 90, tried to do in 93, or the fact that last time it didn't seem to make a lot of difference. Well, maybe this time it will. And, and as a politician, and this is where it gets interesting, do you want to be charged with not, not doing anything because nothing will work and not, not caring and having blood on your hands? I mean, that's, that's where the political dynamic comes to play and that it, we're going to watch play out here over the next months uh, and, and conceivably years. But, you know, here's, here's the funny thing about it is, is, you know, when we start talking about assault weapons ban, let's, let's talk about just the Florida delegation, for example, and the Florida Republicans. On one side, we see uh, Marco Rubio, 
who is one of the top five recipients or top ten recipients of NRA funding, consistently gets a big A or A-plus from the NRA, uh, who believes that, you know, the Second Amendment is pure and that any sort of assault weapons ban is just goes against what the Founding Fathers uh, believe and what they created that amendment or what they created that bill of right for. At the same time, we see another Republican from South Florida, Andrew Cabrello, who is showing some political courage and saying that, look, enough's enough. We have to start getting sensible. The reality is that the, that the founding, anybody who channels the founding fathers, unless you're doing it through some really good seance and some black magic, is not going to have, is not going to be able to give us what the founding fathers truly believed in when they created the Second Amendment, because I guarantee they did not foresee 200 and some odd years ago the the proliferation of a semi-automatic AR-15 or tactical assault rifle as being part of this. We were still using muzzle loads. We didn't even have the handguns back then. So, again, are, are we at a point right now, Alan Moore, where we could start seeing more political courage like what we're seeing from Andrew Curbelo, uh, Republican from South Florida. Is, is there going to be more of that coming, do you think? I, you know, it, it's, hard, it, it's, it's hard to predict or bet against uh, the NRA, but, but uh, it feels different this time, partly because of the experience of the last year and a half, and partly because, strange as it is to say, this president um, – uh, who is a political opportunist, uh, among other things, may see this as something that that uh, he can pull off and get 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 complimented for, um, and not demolished for. I don't know. It it it's in it, in you know doing something is not doing all the things we're talking about. We're we're talking about assault weapons ban, um, and and. Uh, you know, in the in the hope, which I certainly have, that something like that might make a difference sometime, somewhere down the road, um, and and uh, you know, we, we we might actually, if we if we banned uh, the, the the thirty cartridge uh, 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 canisters, whatever those things are called, um, uh, it might it, it might be more possible and might have more impact uh, in the in the interim time. The, the thing is, the real question is whether we're now prepared to enter the debate and try to do something. Um, and I'm feeling like it's a little different this time, not least of all um, because of the kids and because what the president is, uh, the signals he sent. Yeah. Well, and by the way, I want to, I want to correct myself. I kept saying Andrew Carbo, it's Carlos Carbello. <laughs> my, my apologies. To my good friend Carlos on that one, that, that I had Andrew Cuomo on a website in front of me. I meant to say Carlos Carbello, the uh, the Republican out of uh, Dade in Monroe County. Um, so let me let me flip sides on this one. Sharmla is is this going to feed into the wave that we may see? I mean, does this now become a midterm election issue? Or does this die off like every other time we've seen a mass shooting? 
Right. Again, if the Democrats were smart, it will become a midterm uh, a midterm elections issue, and it's somewhat uh, still still February, so I don't know if it'll have the momentum uh, if in in the absence, which I hope there is of another you know horrible event like this. I, I don't know that the momentum will carry through, but I think it it is kind of accumulating into this wave, and especially in these swing districts that are going for Trump, but are seeing this type of violence in a you know a nice suburb like Parkland realizing that it could happen in their communities and thinking, hmm, maybe this is this is the type of consideration they need to shift the needle because other, you know, the other of, you know, kind of the main Republican versus Democrat issues such as immigration um, or, you know, reproductive rights, those don't affect them so much, but this does. The safety of their children affects them profoundly. And so I think that, yeah, this is where you could possibly see a more blue wave coming in those sort of tenuous swing districts, and I think Democrats have a real opportunity to capitalize on that. Alan Moore, do you agree? I do. I do. I, I, I think that – now, having said that, I, 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 have, I haven't conceded the fact that the Republicans may, and this president might not pull a rabbit out of the hat here and, and figure out a way to – to neutralize a little bit by, by by backing some changes that we haven't seen in a long time. We can expect that he will say, I don't know why President Obama didn't do this uh, while he was president. Um, and and he, can, he'll, he, can, he can kind of get away with that for reasons I don't totally understand. Um, but it, so it's not automatically a winner for Democrats. It depends on what happens legislatively, A and B. What happens in the country? What happens between now and November? Are there more incidents? Are there more? Is there more finger pointing? Um, and uh, uh, but but it will definitely be an issue. It just may not always cut uh, it, it the Democrats' way, depending upon events, uh, both legislatively and in the country. Well, joining, joining us on the line right now, uh, we always love having him, and I want to get his perspective on two items before we come off this subject, is uh, he is a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He's the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty well, and uh, calling in from beautiful, sunny Tampa, Florida. Oh, really? Even better. Uh, I mean, it's two of us in Florida. Uh, Admiral Ken, I want to talk to you real quick. We, we just, we've been talking about the tragic shootings in, in Parkland, Florida, that happened late last week, and a lot of issues that come up. I, I, I want to get your take. One, as a gun owner, and two, as, uh, as a former member of the military. I want to start off with your take on this issue. Uh, tell me why civilians need to be able to acquire a tactical assault weapon like an AR-15, an AK-47, a Bushmaster, or an, S, uh, an SKS? There, there's no good reason why they should. Um, you, you, uh, you can't hunt with it because the type of ammunition that it dispenses tumbles once it hits the target and it would tear up the meat. Um, it is a it is a combat arms weapon, uh, and I I have not heard um, over the weekend uh, any of the, the 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 talking heads who are prior military say uh, say anything differently. Um, I, I don't I don't think there's any any point in anyone having having a weapon like that. 
And as a matter of fact, I'll even go so go further and say the only people who should have weapons like that are the police. And the only reason the police should have them is because our society is awash with them, and the bad guys have them now. And uh, as uh, shown uh, by last week's uh, incident in uh, in in, uh, in Florida. Um, so I, I yeah I just I can't be any more emphatic than that. I, I'm you know I I, I think it's it, it should also be mentioned. I had a kind of a, a, an online debate with a former neighbor from Texas, who is interestingly a former LA cop, and he took the exact opposite side of the argument. He you know he doesn't think that uh, there should be any restrictions and that taking um, the uh, that type of weapon away from him is infringing on his constitutional rights. And I think uh, and, and a lot has been said over the weekend that uh, even Scalia, uh, the late Justice Scalia, didn't feel that uh, the people had a constitutional right uh, to, to tactical arms, so uh, tactical small arms. So I, I, you know, I just think it's a bad idea. There's, there's no good reason for it. Admiral Ken, you know, we, we've heard a lot of proposals regarding uh arming teachers arming civilians uh i've heard several times over the weekend uh you know good people with you know carry concealed weapons could have prevented this from happening arming teachers could have prevented this from happening is that a good idea um i whenever i hear that that argument um uh, i i my my brain pulls up an image i'm going to date myself here uh, Don Knotts in his role as Barney Fife, um, you know, with the, the shaky hand when when, uh, when confronted with a real a real situation. You know, I I you know I'm I'm probably one of the few people that 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 will have an, an honest conversation about you know their, their their combat experiences, and you just never know. And I'll just say it like this: you just never know how you're going to react in a crisis situation, and whether whether it's it's being at sea on a ship or, you know, or doing other things. You just never know. And, you know, law enforcement people, military people are trained uh, to, 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 to learn how to respond in those situations. Unless, unless and unless um, you're going to put uh, teachers and your average Joe civilian uh, or Josephine civilian into that kind of rigorous training – uh, I don't see that that's a good idea. Putting more guns in a school. <laughs> I mean, case in point, this this kid that that shot shot the, the school last week. His parents or whoever was his guardians thought thought underline exclamation mark circle thought they had the only key to the gun safe. You know, we've all been teenagers. We are smart. We are conniving. We are industrious. We will figure out a way uh, to you know. To, to, to capsize, in my case, capsize a knockabout when they when they tell you that it's not possible to do so. This is this is what we do as young people. So I, I don't think the idea of putting more guns in in a situ in that situation is is a good thing. I certainly would want uh, my any of my kids uh, to be in a school that's that's got a bunch of guns. But at the same time, though, I think declaring uh, schools gun-free zones with signs. Is basically advertising to the bad guys um, that uh, that that you can go in there and have a free for all, and without there being much 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 uh, uh, much pushback. I think putting more guards in schools probably is a good idea. 
Uh, I think in the near term, uh, metal detectors, unfortunately, are probably going to be required until we get this under control. I, you know, I'll even go, go, go one step further. I, I think the three things that we can do right now, today, is, uh, in this country is, one, go ahead and put in Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan's assault weapons ban. Put that in place. There's no reason for that. Two, uh, find a way to, really, you know, to, to uh, reduce the restrictions on HIPAA requirements around uh, um, reporting people who are having mental, mental, mental challenges, either temporarily or permanently banning them from being able to purchase weapons. And then finally, you know, fix the, the, uh, the background investigation system. Uh, put it on, on real state-of-the-art technology. Um, have it cross state lines. Hell, have it even cross international lines. Because what's to keep a uh, uh, a, a um, you know someone coming in the country posing as a U.S. citizen and, and buying a gun and doing harm? You know those three things we could do right now, and there's no reason uh, you know to, to push this off. And I'm really admiring these kids down in Florida that are that are that are making the, making the adults uh, like us look stupid for not for not taking this on more seriously uh, before now. I would I would also add on cancel or cut out the gun show loophole and the gift uh the gift exemption yeah uh, agreed there's no reason why a father should buy a child or anybody else as a birthday gift a tactical assault weapon um i just want to i just want to add one my, my my uh two cents on on this idea of uh putting more guns in the street you know i've heard a bunch of my friends from places like Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, even even up in Montana. Friends of mine are saying, telling me, hey, you don't get it. You know, if, if everybody had a concealed, or Oklahoma even, if everybody had a, had a weapon on their side, we'd, we'd see less violence. And my argument to that is you'd see a lot more dead bodies. What you don't have when you have people carrying concealed weapons that you do have in professional law enforcement and even special protection or security officers, armed security guards, they have to go through qualification with these weapons at least once every six months. And then they go through something called the judgmental. It is a shoot. Whoa, 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 whoa. Somebody's got some big feedback. Um, Police have to go through what they call the judgmental. Uh, range or the shoot don't shoot range. These people go through every six months at minimum and go through scenarios where they have to make the split second decision of shoot or don't shoot. We're going to be posting uh, up, I'm going to be posting up on uh, the Backroom Politics Facebook site a news story, two of them. One about a reporter. Uh, who went through judgmental and said that, my gosh, that's such a tough job. But another one where they had a college class, a a class with students in it, where a certain number of them were armed with paintball pistols, but no one knew who had them. And they went through an active shooter scenario, and what they found was the untrained people that had sidearms were not only inaccurate, but a majority of them didn't shoot because they were scared to shoot. That's the problem. And so more guns is not the solution in this one. That's my two cents. Sorry for the comment. Let, yeah, let me add one. let me add one 
let me add one uh, one one thought there uh, too. The the uh, if you are more uh, more teachers, not you you guys are absolutely right about all the training, and even then it's a challenge. So two thoughts: one, kids and guns tend to to create accidents. So you you add a bunch of guns to a school, and you got all these kids. You just know they're going to be accidents. It happens in homes. Trained police officers have accidents in their homes when they're not sufficiently careful. So you know there's going to be accidents. But then imagine this: imagine that there were five teachers who were who were packing heat at uh, uh, in the Florida shooting situation, and they're trying to protect kids, and they've got their guns out, and they're they're trying to figure out where this shooter is meanwhile the SWAT teams come in and who are they going to look for they're going to look for people with guns they're going to shoot the 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 teachers who are armed trying to protect the students um there there, (laughs) there's so many reasons that that uh that that it's a bad idea um and i just wanted to add those uh, additional ones that that's a very 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 good point Wow, somebody's got feedback. I think I know who it is. There we go. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a few minutes. Uh, we, we cannot not talk about the, uh, the indictments that happened last week. We're going to take a couple of minutes to talk about that, and then I'm going to have just a minute of last thoughts on what happened here in Florida. This is Backroom Politics, live from Florida and places beyond uh, live on blog talk radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is backroom politics.
This is Backroom Politics. And we're back for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell, broadcasting from the great state of Florida, as is Admiral Ken Carradine. Joining us from New York, Sharma Lachari, and from the National Capital Region, the Honorable Alan Moore. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit. There, there's been other big news coming out of uh, the nation's capital, and we've got to talk about that real quick. But the the big the big ticket item that came out last week late was uh, apparently uh, Robert Mueller's team has been very very busy and so busy that they, in fact, handed down an indictment against 13 Russians and a Russian media organization. Uh, one, of those, uh, one of those indicted includes the gentleman that they are commonly referring to as uh, Putin's chef, and Putin's chef is an oligarch who has billions of dollars, and one of the contracts he has is he runs catering for the Putin organization there in the Kremlin. Uh, it, it basically comes down to a fact that they were indicted for, uh, for lack of a better term, meddling and providing bad information and wire fraud and electronic fraud, all kinds of different charges that were brought up on this indictment. Uh, it does accuse those indicted of, in fact, meddling in the electoral process. Now, Donald Trump has since, has since said that the indictment itself vindicates him showing up, no collusion, see, told you so, nothing to see here, which in fact, uh, last time I checked, indictments don't vindicate people. They charge people for crimes, but they don't vindicate people. So that's a whole other story. Um, Alan Moore, let me start with you. Why is why is that such a big story in, in the national scene? Why are these indictments a big deal? Well, uh, for s- several reasons. First and foremost, uh, they, they are another step locking down the proof that the Russians really did attempt to intervene and interfere and influence uh, the election. Um, and they, it names names. It identifies uh, specific ads, talks about processes that were used. It, it, it's really an extraordinary piece of, uh, uh, of investigation work uh, by a, a pretty small uh, group of folks in, in, the, in the Mueller team. Uh, two, it shows so, – so it shows that, that this important charge that all Americans should care about, which is the integrity of our, of our elections um, – was uh, was potentially compromised is vulnerable to being compromised by people who have uh, uh, some resources and and some technical skill and that should frighten all of us wherever however one feels about uh, this president in this past election two it's a reminder that that <laughs> Mueller and his team are working hard and doing a lot of stuff and we don't know what they're doing we don't know what's next we don't know how broad the investigation is the there was talk a few months ago i remember people saying oh there's all these leaks coming from Mueller." and i thought no i don't think they're coming from Mueller. i think they're coming from the white house when they're saying well this person's been talked to that person's been talked to um 
and uh, and this is more proof. Every time he's uh, they, they've dropped an indictment or a plea agreement, it's been a surprise. If we need any further evidence that right. Mueller is running a very tight ship, uh, we've got it. Um, and uh, and thirdly, <laughs> notwithstanding uh, the president's wishes and tweets to the contrary, this doesn't clear him and his people of uh, of the, the the possibility that they were a involved in collusion or b that they tried to obstruct uh, this entire investigation. It simply does not speak to that question. Um, and, so, and the president looked, looked, looked silly trying to say that it did. So, Charlotte, when we look at the indictment handed down, uh, announced by the uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, uh, we, we saw of the 13, three were charged with conspiracy to commit wire and bank fraud, five charged with identity theft, uh, others in, in other cons- uh, others were charged with other aspects of conspiracy. Is is this the beginning of much larger indictments and much bigger charges closer to home? And by closer to home, I mean closer to the Trump administration. I think that is yet to be seen, but it seems very likely. Um, today there was news of an additional indictment, which is of a American lawyer who is married to the daughter of one of these Russian oligarchs. He's, He's not American. At, uh, Skadden Arps. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. He's I think okay. Um, but he, but, but he's, he's but not he a Russian is. national, but who is married to the daughter of a, a Russian oligarch who was a former associate at Skadden Arps, which is a white shoe law firm, uh, who is charged, charged with a relatively minor offense of uh, providing false statements to the FBI, which, you know, as you saw with some of the other indictments, and destruction, is often and destruction of George, evidence. And destruction of evidence. But as you saw with, uh, I believe, George Papadopoulos, that's usually a plea that, that indicates that this person is cooperating with authorities and potentially could have information on higher-ups in the campaign structure. So I think there's a lot of speculation right now. One, one key issue is that for the indictments of Russian officials, uh, and Russian nationals, I don't know how much leverage that's going to have because if they don't submit to the jurisdiction of the U.S., then these indictments are, are largely symbolic. But if you can issue enough indictments to lower-level people and you're getting them to cop these reduced charges, there is a likely chance that you're going to see more information and more ro- indictments rolling out for higher-ups in the campaign. So, Sharma, let me stay with you on a legal aspect for a second real quick because, uh, num- number one, uh, the the attorney that was uh that, that struck a plea deal uh with the uh with the ju- with the Justice Department and with the special counsel's office. Uh in fact he was licensed to practice law here in the United States. He will obviously lose his license. But the, the bigger concern is that they're talking about uh a discussion where the Department of Justice was investigating incidents from going as far back as 2014. Traditionally, I mean, in your opinion, does this look like that Mueller is in fact literally going back that far to connect all the dots on this back to modern-day White House? Well, yes, certainly. It looks like he is 
he's going where the facts lead him, which should, you know, reassure people of the integrity of this investigation. In 2014, Donald Trump wasn't even, hadn't even announced his candidacy for the presidency. So I think that, you know, for all of those who are trying to claim bias or anything else in this investigation, you're seeing that he really is going back from the, to the beginning. He's trying to construct an accurate picture of what the facts are. When did this meddling start? You know, what, what was the course it took through, from 2014 when it started through 2016 and beyond? Um, he's going where the facts lead him, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. Uh, let me go back to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, the, the attorney that we're questioning is an associate of Gates and Manafort. Uh, no real direct, uh, you know, firsthand ties to the Trump organization that we know of right now unless I'm incorrect, but why is the connection to Manafort and Gates so big on something that looked like it didn't have direct contact with the uh, Trump organization? Well, this is all tied in with trying to get at Manafort um, and, and possibly Gates. I mean, there were, there were reports last week that Gates was going to cut a deal uh, and, and, and uh, agree to a plea with Mueller people of some kind of jail time. And then the thought being that he would be completely uh, forthcoming about everything that Manafort ever did. Manafort is – and, and, and this guy is one, one removed from that. This guy was with the London office of the big law firm, U.S. law firm Skadden Arps, uh, involved in a in a in an analysis of whether it was legal for the Ukrainian uh, president to arrest a former prime minister, and they were trying to make this legal case. Um, and this guy was involved in that. And then for reasons that you know, who knows why people do this stuff, he lied to the FBI about it. So this was another case of doing things that may or may not have been illegal, but lying about it to the FBI is always illegal. Um, and my guess is that, that it's still – they sort of stumble onto this. They're still trying to make as much of a case against Manafort as they can, and they keep adding new information and discovering new things about Manafort's uh, financial ties, uh, particularly to Ukraine and, and, uh, uh, and its former leader and then, and then some other Russians. So I think the thought is, okay – we're really, we're really extending the case against Manafort, and that will go forward regardless of whatever happens with the president. I think what they'd love to do is turn Manafort, thinking that Manafort actually has something that could implicate either the president or those really close to the president, because Manafort was running the campaign for a while. He was in the famous meeting with Donald Trump Jr. Um, and Jared Kushner with, uh, with the Russians who, when they were supposed to get dirt on the Russians. So Manafort was right there, and he presumably is or is simply not talking about what went, in, went on with the transition, even though he potentially faces, uh, for a guy who's almost 70, you know, a long time in prison. Um, and disgorgement of much of his uh, much of his wealth, um, but but uh, you know I I have no idea what what Manafort actually has uh, on any of those folks uh, in closer to the to the to the president himself or those in close. But this is just part of that, and that's why it was almost a not a throwaway, but a little minor. Let's drop that in uh, today. The 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 
the indictments of the 13 Russians was a much bigger story in terms of the integrity of America's uh, electoral process. Uh, that, that, that will get uh, more uh, interest from the Hill and they will, they will want to dig in. They will want to, they will want to hear, they will want to see more, read more, hear more about exactly what the Russians were doing so that we can provide better protections uh, along with hopefully some help from the Facebooks and, and, and Googles uh, and Twitters of the world uh, for uh, for uh, future elections. Admiral Ken, it, it, it seems to me that uh, those inside the White House, in particular those close to the president, have literally lost touch with reality when they continue to have the president tweet out 19 times over the weekend just on the Russian indictment that happened Friday, including a tweet that basically said the FBI is too busy looking into Russia. That's why uh, the Florida shooting happened. Uh, Fix this. Is is there – this has got to worry Republicans the closer and closer we get to November 2018, Admiral. Well, so – uh, as of this morning, I think uh, the 23rd Republican congressman, I think some gentleman in Florida, announced that he would not be seeking re-election this year. So the Democrats only have to flip 26 seats in order to take the uh, the House. And uh, if if the president and um, his 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 uh, following in Congress don't change course. Uh, I am not going to be surprised to see that happening. Um, you know, what's really, what's really, I guess, funny, because uh, I, I have to try and mine some humor out of this, because uh, if, if I don't, I don't get any sleep at night and just wake up in a cold sweat uh, and, and scared to death, is that uh, last week when the president was saying, see, nothing here, no collusion, even though these 13 Russians had been uh, indicted, uh <laughs> I, you know, I basically made the comment, I hope that, you know, whatever, whatever drugs the president's taking um, don't show up when he goes up for a security clearance uh, review. Not, uh, of course, understanding he doesn't get one like everybody else does. And one of my, uh, one of my followers came well, neither, back and said, neither does, one of my, son, neither does his son-in-law or daughter. Apparently. Right, right. Yeah. And what, one of, one of my, my Twitter followers came back, you know, quite, quite aghast that I would even intimate that the president was taking drugs. And I said, well, it's either that or he's nuts, and you can stop taking drugs. So nuts don't, don't, don't wash off. So, Alan, go ahead, go ahead, Admiral. So I, I guess the thing, you know, taking, taking you know, this, the comments about the FBI, you know, it, it's, you know, I, you, have to, you have to wonder, you know, at what point do you basically unplug uh, to even come up with the thought that the FBI can't do more than one thing at, at a time. And I guess the other, the flip side of that is, does he not understand how his law enforcement agency works? That the Miami field office, the Miami field office, unless Paul Manafort or Jared Kushner or, or Don Jr. Uh, were hanging out talking to Russians down in Miami, has nothing to do with the Russia investigation. And that they're 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 on to doing other things that that we need them to do. And you know, yeah, they they made a mistake and they they proved that that uh, 
that they're a human organization. But, you know, I, I'll say this to the, about the FBI. You know, they, they, they stepped up. They said, you know what? We screwed up. We made a mistake. And, 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 uh, and people probably died because of it. But, you know, there's some level of transparency there, and that, that makes me feel a whole lot better because as, as we have just got done discussing, you know, with, with regard to this lawyer that, that's been indicted today, it's usually not the deed. It's the lie that catches it, especially with the FBI. Right. It, it, it seems to me that, that the White House has had a really bad week, Charmler, last week, uh, notwithstanding the obvious tragedy in South Florida, but between the indictments and the continued scrutiny on security clearances at the White House, it, it just seems that the, the, every time the White, you know, the Trump administration takes one step forward, it takes 2,182 steps back. Is, is there any way that they can stop the hemorrhaging without it? starting at the top and somebody ripping that phone out of the president's hand? Well, I think that they could stop the hemorrhaging by um, kind of really eliminating, other than General Kelly, eliminating that top layer underneath the president. I'm not going to sit here and go on a screen about how the president needs to be removed, but I think that, so for the so, funnily enough, this weekend I finally got around to reading Fire and Fury, and I thought what was so interesting about it and what was far more scandalous than what was published was the fact that all these different – yes, we know there are all these different power centers in the White House competing for the president's attention, but what was more scandalous and more scary to me was the fact that all these power centers are really working for their own interests and not the president's and not the country's. And so I think the way that you – can perhaps clean house and, you know, reset the bar for the White House is to get rid of that top layer, get rid of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, get rid of Gary Cohn and Dita Powell and, you know, Steve Miller and Hope Hicks, get, just get rid of all of them, install people who actually care about this country and, as scary as it seems, install people who care about enacting the president's agenda and only that, because that's where this White House is going wrong. You see that half of these, or more than half of these unforced errors are happening because people are protecting their own interests versus the president's. Alan Moore. Hey, Justin, as we all know, the White House has an ongoing problem of attracting competent people, and then it has trouble clearing them. But I'm thinking with regard to Sharmila's suggestion here, if you clear out this group and you need to and you need to find somebody. I'm thinking about a person we all know who has talked about how you persuade the president to do things. You, you, are, you try to be supportive of him. You try to nudge him forward. You compliment him, um, even if you're not feeling uh, all of that positive towards him. And the person I'm thinking, who I think could be a terrific addition to this White House, is Sharmila who was expressing those views earlier in the show. And I thought, God, we need to figure out how to get Sharmila into this White House. She's figured out Trump. And yeah, she now wants to create I, 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 I can only say, I can only say, I can only say, having met Sharmila, she likes taking a shower. Nobody in the Pentagon takes shower. I mean, in the White House takes showers anymore. <laughs> 
Thank you. Wow. Oh, that is the best defense, Charmla, better know, defense that I can mount for myself a, than going to work for the Trump administration. I was going to say, Charmla, you know, there's a lot of uh, openings there at the uh, White House you could possibly go for. That's true. I you know, don't I, know. Considering, I, considering their position on never Trump Republicans, I'm not sure how they're going to feel about a former Hillary campaign staffer. But, you know, their background check system isn't great, so maybe I'll just slip through the cracks. You're not a never yeah, Trump Republican. That's true. True. That's true. She's a Democrat. <laughs> That's true. And there are a considerable uh, number Gary of those Cohen, serving the administration. Gary, the president was a Democrat. Gary Cohen was a Democrat. That's, Come on. So was Anthony Scaramucci. Steve, and, and Steve Mnuchin. And Steve Mnuchin. And Let's Steve not forget Mnuchin. our Secretary of Treasury. Let's be real. They're uh, still Democrats. You know, they're still Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line here well, is... If they need to be. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Never mind about Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. Again, let me go back. Let me get back on track here. The bottom line here, Admiral Ken, is that you know we've got the Russian indictments, we've got the plea bargain today. Uh, this following up, uh, literally the past sixty days of maneuvering by the uh, special counsel's office to really start putting people on the hot seat. Is there a possibility that before, and just going off of your gut feeling, is there a possibility that before the midterms we could see somebody with the last name of Trump having uh, problems with special counsel's office? Yeah, I, I think you, you probably will. Um, if if not uh, Trump last name, somebody married to Trump directly. Yeah, um, that that'd be my guess. So you know. So the the thing I think that I, I you know and I I was late to the call so if this has been said already please forgive me, um, um, the thing I think that's interesting is between the um, the thirteen indictments that were handed down last week and the shooting, um, all the back channel discussions of the president firing Mueller have kind of gone silent. They're pretty quiet right now. And uh, I think I think Mueller's decision to uh, to announce uh, one to keep being able to keep everything quiet, uh, as well as announce the um, the indictments the way that he did, because you know doing it on a Friday does it just in time to you know catch all the all the uh, the Sunday shows that, that Trump likes to watch. I mean, it was masterful. It was awesome. So what I what I think is going to happen is I think is going to happen is you're gonna you're gonna see a Trump person in in, in trouble. Um, I, there's a pretty good chance that even if you do, a Republican Congress won't do anything about it, but a newly, newly elected Democratic Congress would. And I think that's probably the one thing, if they're not thinking about that, if they're not worried about it, they need to be, because if things keep going the way that they're going, uh, among the problem with, 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 with attracting qualified talent into the White House, they've also got a problem with, with the truth. They've got a huge problem with the truth. I don't know who they think they're fooling. Um, the base, the 20% base, is not enough to one to to keep most of these people in office, and it's definitely not enough to keep the hounds at bay if Mueller comes up with something substantial. Sharmila, I mean, is is what Admiral Ken saying in the minds of Democratic leadership moving forward towards November? Oh, I think certainly. 
I think that the, you know, again, the Democrats would be fools not to, um, not to pursue the potential corruption angle, especially for all the, um, for all the uh, bile that you know Trump and the GOP skewed or spewed about, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and the Clintons' corruptness and graft and all, you know, all of that, that whole line of, that whole line of attack. Uh, the Democrats would be poorly served by the leadership if they did not expose and follow a similar thread for the president. And so I think, you know, again, it'll, we have to wait and see what the special counsel turns up. And if, if indictments start coming down for people with the last name of Trump or Kushner, then it's going to be really interesting to see how the Democrats use that to their political advantage. Well, here's the other question, though, is it may be in their mind, can they effectively pull it off? Well, considering how ineffective the Democrats have been pulling off many political arguments that should have fell in their favor, I have my doubts, but here's hoping. Yeah. Justin? Alan Moore? Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a, a word on on the uh, uh, on whether Mueller will be indicting uh, uh, family members. I, I predict he will not. Um, uh, Sharmila was talking about uh, about the book, about the the, the infighting uh, in, in in the White House. Uh, we all know that during the campaign and the transition, um, these guys couldn't make lunch, much less uh, put a put a uh, a collusion together with with Russians. Uh, they are also people who they also put put uh, they they leak on each other. They attack and cut. And if there was something out there, I'm thinking we would know more about it by now. Uh, I don't think they were above doing it. I think they might have done it. I think the fact they went to that meeting uh, expecting to get dirt on Hillary and came away empty-handed was very disappointing to them. I think they might have been sucked in. Um, I think their vulnerability, if they have it, is not collusion. I think the vulnerability is if they if they chose to lie about uh, about conversations um, and, and uh, or meetings that they might have had that they were embarrassed about or thought was too risky and no one would ever know. Um, it's those lies, as we said, that, that, that tends to get you. Um, uh, I, I think that – so I, I'm not expecting um, uh, indictments uh, re- relating to collusion. I don't know what to think about, about indictments for lying. Uh, that's certainly possible. I, I don't know. I don't predict it. Um, and uh, if this president had <laughs> had not fired Comey, and if he if he kept his phone in his pocket and let this thing play out, we might all be focused on what the Russians did in the election and how it might or might not have made a, made a difference in the end, and how horrifying that thought is, um, and and uh, and kind of come together and figure out how we be sure we protect the integrity of of our system. We would all been a lot better off. Of course, we're not. Uh, we're all suffering from it, um, and uh, uh, who knows? You know, this show week to right. week, we think, oh, we're going to be talking about this, and inevitably we talk about something else. Um, usually it's because of something the president does. In this case, it's because of what happened in Florida, which protected the president from some crazy stuff that would have been in the front pages. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and then, of course, the, the – the, the Mueller indictments, right. which the president's doing his right. best to muck up. Right. Well, uh, I, I, I want to thank everybody for for the commentary today. I, I hate to transition like that, 
uh, or transition like this, but um, I just want to take a couple of seconds real quick. One minute just to give my final thoughts, taking moderator's privilege and, and give final thoughts on the uh, on the shooting in Parkland and, and just in the mass shootings in general. I am sick and tired of having to turn on the TV and see breaking news about children and adults, teachers being shot in mass in the streets, not just in my in my state of Florida where I've got uh, 30 years of history living there in and out. Uh, I hate, I'm tired of seeing people that I know from government having to go in front of TV cameras and having to talk about another mass shooting. I hope to God that Congress and in particular my Republican Party will show some political courage and put an end to this so we don't have to see a hashtag never again talking about dead children in schools. This insanity has to end. We're not going to take away the Second Amendment. We're not going to rip away all the guns, but there has to be some sensible solution into making this stop and that begins with a ban on tactical assault weapons in the hands of civilians. It is wrong, it is not necessary and it is a garbage argument from the gun lobby that keeps them in the open market. Because I don't want to have to do this again but I want to close out by saying Obviously, our thoughts and prayers, as, as little as it is, we, our hearts are with those who lost loved ones in this tragic, senseless act of evil that happened down in Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The victims include... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Alyssa Aldehef, she was, four, she was uh, 14. Martin Aviano, also 14. Nicholas Doré, he was a high school swimmer looking at the University of Indianapolis. Uh, he was a student. Aaron Fells, he was a football coach, a security monitor who put himself who put himself in the line of fire to protect other students. Jennifer Gutenberg, Christopher Hickson, Luke Hoyer, Kara Lofren. Gina Montalto, Joaquin Oliver, Aliana Petty, Meadow Pollock, Helena Ramsey, Alex Schechter, Carmen Shintrup, Peter Wang. We shouldn't have to do this again. Uh, excuse me. On behalf of 
Uh, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken, Sharma Lachari up in New York. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next week, hopefully on much uh, better subject matter. But please keep those who lost their lives in your hearts, in your prayers, in your thoughts. And by all means, please make sure that this never happens again. Have a great week, America.